Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I begin, I just want to say thank you to A. Asai, who left me a wonderful five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I truly do appreciate it. By putting these reviews in, well, they really help move it up the rankings. And I love it. Thank you so much. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and From John to Justin, available on all podcast platforms. He's called the greatest land geographer who ever lived, and he's my personal favorite Canadian historical figure. His name was David Thompson, and his impact on Canada is nothing short of immense. David Thompson was born on April 30, 1770 in Westminster, Middlesex to Welsh immigrants David and Anne Thompson. Sadly, the young child Thompson would never really know his father as his father died when Thompson was only two. This left his mother having to take care of the family and with nearly no resources, she was forced to place David and his older brother in the Grey Coat Hospital in London, which was a school for the poor and orphaned. And as it turned out, that may have been the best thing for him. Thompson quickly showed that he had a talent for navigation, surveying, and mathematics. And his education would include using nautical instruments, making navigational calculations using the sun, moon, and tides, taking land measurements, and sketching landscapes. He would eventually be recruited by the Hudson's Bay Company when he was 14, and he set sail for Canada in 1784, never to return to England. This was accomplished because the treasurer of Greycoat paid for Thompson, £5 or £760 today, to apprentice with the company. And upon joining the Hudson's Bay Company, Thompson became an indentured servant for seven years to be trained as a clerk. And on May 28, 1784, he would leave England. It was with the Hudson's Bay Company, while working as a clerk, that he would find his true calling. On September 2, 1784, Thompson arrived at Churchill and was put to work copying the personal papers of Samuel Hearn, the famous explorer and governor of Fort Churchill. That first year, according to Thompson, was one with little productive activity. He spent most of his time copying Hearn's book, A Journey from the Prince of Wales Fort, which likely helped ignite the imagination of Thompson to explore the interior as Hearn had once done. In 1785, Thompson transferred to York Factory, taking the 200-kilometer journey by foot with two indigenous men, and he learned to live off the land. While at York, rather than spend his time with the other men in the fort and working in the warehouse, he spent his time in the hunting camps with the servants. In 1786, he was sent to Cumberland House, where he would gain a working knowledge of the Cree language, spending the summer there and then leaving in September with 14 others to establish South Branch House near present-day Batoche, Saskatchewan. Returning to Cumberland House the next year, he met George Hudson, who had also attended the Grey Coat Hospital. Thompson found him to be a man who had allowed his morals and physical health to decline, while in the long isolation of the Canadian Northwest. 
This would serve as an example for Thompson of the dangers of that isolation. One experience that occurred during his time as a clerk at Cumberland House resulted in a life-changing experience for Thompson. In his journal, he would describe an experience that changed him forever, and he wrote, quote, I was sitting at a small table with the checkerboard before me when the devil sat down opposite to me, end quote. According to Thompson, they played and the devil lost each game, and he relates, quote, He got up, or rather disappeared. My eyes were open. It was broad daylight. I looked around. All was silence and solitude. Was it a dream, or was it reality? I could not decide. End quote. Thompson soon became a devout Christian, which he would remain as for the rest of his life. In 1787, when Thompson was 17, he would go to the Alberta foothills to meet with the Bacani people, and while with the indigenous, he met Sakamapi, an 80-year-old elder who told him about the indigenous people of the plains. He told Thompson that smallpox had killed hundreds, including an entire enemy band who died before the Bacani people could do a nighttime raid. When they took the possessions from the camp, the smallpox spread to them. Sakamapi would tell Thompson, quote, We had no belief that one man could give it to another any more than a wounded man could give his wound to another. We shall never again be the same people. End quote. The experience would have a big impact on Thompson, who would become an acute and sympathetic observer to the indigenous, when most Europeans saw them as only a savage people. He would also learn to speak several indigenous languages. On December 23, 1788, an event would happen that would change Thompson's life forever. He suffered an accident and seriously fractured his tibia while at Manchester House. Severe swelling prevented the leg from healing properly, and it healed slowly. This resulted in Thompson being forced to stay two winters at Cumberland House. Instead of doing nothing, he worked to refine and expand his surveying, astronomical, and mathematical skills with the help of Philip Turner, a surveyor with the company. He began to study the stars and sky so much that he would lose sight in one eye as a result. He was also aided by William Thomason, who served as a father figure to Thompson during those years. Due to his leg injury and his one eye, he was not part of the expedition to Lake Athabasca, was instead sent to York Factory to continue his apprenticeship. In 1790, with his time as an apprentice coming to an end, Thompson asked to receive surveying tools rather than the typical parting gift of fine clothes. The Hudson's Bay Company would reward him with both. He was also offered a contract for three years at £15 a year, or £2,300 today. In 1792, he would embark on his first significant survey, mapping a route to Lake Athabasca. The following year, from February to May, Thompson made 34 observations of the longitude of Cumberland House using lunar distances. He would take roughly three hours for each calculation of his observations, resulting in a mean error far below what had been thought possible at the time. With these skills, he believed that he would be hired as a surveyor for the company, and at first it did seem that way. He was instructed in the fall to survey the waterways between the Nelson and Churchill Rivers, which was a new area of competition for the company and its rival, Northwest Company. He would establish a post at Sipiwesk Lake and then surveyed a route to the Churchill by way of the Burnt Wood River. And thanks to his skills as a map maker and surveyor, Thompson was soon promoted to surveyor in 1794 
and saw his pay increase to £60 a year or £8,100 today. He then continued surveying and his explorations towards Lake Athabasca. He left York Factory on July 18, 1794, reaching the Churchill River before he and his men had to winter. He would complete his trip to Lake Athabasca in 1796, traveling with two Chippewan guides, and then taking six weeks to return back to York Factory. The route proved to be impassable, unfortunately, due to terrain that was barely passable in the summer. Thompson would continue to work for the Hudson's Bay Company until May 23, 1797, when he was given an order to cease surveying and instead focus on the fur trade. There's some debate about why he left the company, and if there was even an order to cease surveying. What is known is that in the summer of 1796, he had been nominated to take over as the master to the northward, where his primary duties would have been managing the fur trade. He would have received a substantial pay increase and bonuses, so his decision to leave was not financial, and was clearly based on his desire to continue surveying, rather than be relegated to what would be considered a desk job. Thankfully, another company was more than happy to use the talents of Thompson. He would walk 130 kilometers in the snow to the nearest Northwest Company fort, where he was immediately hired on as a surveyor for the company. This was not taken well by the Hudson's Bay Company, though, where it was customary to provide a one-year notice. For Thompson, what mattered to him was that the Northwest Company was supporting of his work as a surveyor. In 1797, the Northwest Company sent Thompson south to survey part of the Canadian-U.S. border along the water routes from Lake Superior to the Lake of the Woods. This was important because it would solve any unresolved questions that existed over the Jay Treaty that had been signed between England and the United States. Over the course of only 10 months, he completed an exploratory survey of the major rivers and lakes from Lake Superior to Lake Winnipeg and throughout future southern Manitoba. He related the experience in his diary, of which I'm going to include certain parts from here. Quote, November 26, 1797, Sunday. A cloudy, snowy day. Thermometer four below. My men looking for horses all day but could not find them. November 29, 1797, Wednesday. A very cold day with a westerly wind at about 7 a.m. Thermometer 27 below at 9 a.m. 22 below, lay by, being too cold to proceed. December 8th, Friday. A fine, clear day. Would have set off but wished to give my yellow horse in care to the Indians to take to the house. At 10 a.m. an old Indian came to whom I gave the horse and care with a note to Mr. McDonnell. Observed the latitude and with sun, moon, northwest at night, Jupiter. No success hunting, our provisions all done. Thermometer 10 below. December 11th, Monday. A cloudy day and southerly gale with showers of snow. The snow thawing. At 8 a.m. set off and went about 200 yards to a hummock of oak, ash, and aspens when we put up. A bad snowy day. No success hunting. December 13th, Wednesday. A very stormy night and day with very high drift wind north clear sky. Could not proceed. Observed for longitude and latitude. January 30th, Tuesday. A very close thick day. It was almost as dark as night the whole day without ever clearing. At 7 a.m. set off for the Turtle Mountains. Course north 10 west by the compass 24 miles to the woods. We put up at 4.30 p.m. about 3 miles east-northeast of the place where we took the tent poles. 
Thank God as we made the woods, which we did not see until we were within half a mile of them, the weather cleared easterly. End quote. During 1798, Thompson traveled through the upper Churchill River, to the Beaver River, and then to the Red Deer River to establish the post of Lac La Biche, located in present-day Alberta. He then looked for a new route from the North Saskatchewan River to the Athabasca River, using the Pembina River, and then followed the Athabasca River to the Clearwater River in Saskatchewan. It was during this epic journey that he would marry Charlotte Small on June 10, 1799. This was not a country marriage as it was often called when a fur trader or explorer married an indigenous woman, and Small was Métis, the daughter of a fur trader and Cree woman. Small's own mother had been abandoned by her father when he left the country following his term of employment. The couple would be married for 57 years, the longest pre-Confederation marriage on record. The couple would have 13 children, five of whom were born while the couple were out exploring, and two of which would pass away following his exploration years. Thompson would often take his wife and children on trips, venturing into the unknown, and in his reports he would name his wife by name, something that was uncommon at the time. The next few years would see Thompson slow down in his exploration and surveying, as he had duties to attend to at Fort George, Rocky Mountain House, and Peace River. But he would complete two short surveying trips in 1800 and 1801. In 1802, John Jeremiah Bigsby, a British geologist, was at a dinner party in Montreal when he met David Thompson, giving us one of the best descriptions of the man. He would state, quote, He was plainly dressed, quiet, and observant. His figure was short and compact, and his black hair was worn long all round and cut square, as if by one stroke of the shears just above the eyebrows. His complexion was that of a gardener's ruddy brown, while the expression of his deeply furrowed features was friendly and intelligent, but his cut short nose gave him an odd look. Gibbsy would travel with Thompson afterwards and grew to have a great deal of respect and admiration for him. He would state, quote, No living person possesses a tithe of his information representing the Hudson's Bay countries. Never mind his bunion like face and cropped hair, he has a very powerful mind and a singular faculty of picture making. End quote. Around this same time near Jasper, Alberta, Thompson would record finding large footprints describing them as, quote, measured 14 inches in length by 8 inches in breadth, end quote. While some suggest that these were left by a Sasquatch, Thompson stated that there was a small nail at the end of each toe and that the tracks resembled that of a large bear's track. On July 10, 1804, Thompson was made a full partner of the company. Known as a wintering partner, he was based in the field rather than Montreal, and he received two of the 92 shares in the company worth £4,000, or £409,000 today. During this time, he was becoming dissatisfied with his career, as other duties were taking him away from surveying. This may have been the end of his career, but something would happen that would cement his legacy through the explorations that he has become most known for. After the general meeting of the company in 1806, the Northwest Company was worried about the overland expedition to the Pacific coast conducted by Lewis and Clark. The company wanted to establish a route to the Pacific, and Thompson was told to journey out there and find a gateway to the new territory. He would travel up the North Saskatchewan River with Finn and MacDonald and eight other men, as well as a wife and three children. 
spending time at Rocky Mountain House during the winter, he then crossed the Rocky Mountains on June 25, 1807, and he would say, quote, At length, the Rocky Mountains came in sight like shining white clouds on the horizon, but we doubted what our guide said. But as we proceeded, they rose in height, their immense masses of snow appearing above the clouds and formed an impassable barrier even to the eagle, end quote. He would also write on June 22, 1807, quote, May God in his mercy give me to see where the waters of this river flow to the western ocean. End quote. Thompson then descended the Blaeberry River to a river he called the Kootenai, which was in actuality the Columbia River. To navigate the river, he used a rough log raft, which was safer than a canoe. Using two long logs over a dozen spruce rollers with a sapling tree for a pole, Packs were put in the center of the raft to keep them free from becoming wet. For the next two seasons, he would map and establish trading posts in the future states of Montana, Idaho, Washington, and in western Canada. The establishment of these posts allowed the Northwest Company to begin trading in the Columbia Basin drainage area. And the maps that Thompson produced of this area were of such high quality, they were still being used in the 20th century. In 1810, Thompson was heading towards Montreal when he was given orders on July 22nd to return to the west and establish a route to the mouth of the Columbia. The Northwest Company was worried that John Jacob Astor was sending an American ship around the Americas to establish a fur trading post for the Pacific Fur Company on the coast. While on that journey and staying in Rocky Mountain House, Thompson would relate his desire to be out of the bush for a while in a letter to his friend MacDonald of Garth. He writes, quote, If all goes well and it pleases good providence to take care of me, I hope to see you in the civilized world in the autumn of 1812. I'm getting tired of such constant hard journeys. For the past 12 months, I have spent barely two months under the shelter of a hut. All the rest have been in my tent, and there is little likelihood the next 12 months will be much different. End quote. Navigating through the Athabasca Pass during the winter, he and his men would winter in a small hut on the banks of the Columbia River near Canoe River, B.C. In April, he and his men made their way south to Salish House and then on to Spokane House near Spokane, Washington, then north to the Kettle Falls. There, he would build a canoe for the last leg of the journey. Leaving on July 3rd, he proceeded down the river and along the way, he would visit indigenous villages and establish good relations with them. On July 9, 1811, near the Snake River, Thompson writes, quote, I erected a small pole with a half sheet of paper tied about it with these words. No, hereby this country is claimed by Great Britain and the Northwest Company from Canada do hereby intent to erect a factory on this place for the commerce of the country, End quote. At 1 p.m. on July 15, 1811, Thompson reached the partially constructed Fort Astoria. Thompson had arrived two months too late to set up a post for the Northwest Company. Gabriel Franchet would write on the day upon seeing Thompson arrive, quote, Toward midday we saw a large canoe with a flag displayed at her stern, rounding the point which we called Tongue Point. We knew not who it could be, for we did not soon expect our own party, who were to cross the continent by the route which Captains Lewis and Clark had followed. End quote. He continues, quote, The flag she bore was that of the British, and her crew was composed of eight Canadian boatmen and voyageurs. A well-dressed man who appeared to be the commander 
was the first to leap ashore and addressing us without ceremony, said that his name was David Thompson, and that he was one of the partners of the Northwest Company. End quote. Thompson would stay at the fort for a short time where he and his men were seen as competitors, but he was still treated well. Franchet relates, quote, Mr. Thompson kept a regular journal and traveled. I thought more like a geographer than a fur trader. He was provided with a sextant chronometer and barometer, and during a week's sojourn, which he made at our place, had an opportunity to make several astronomical observations. End quote. On July 22, 1811, Thompson set out on the Columbia River, joined by a Pacific Fur Company boat before they parted ways, as Thompson moved north. He would eventually reach Canoe River, completing the survey he had started in 1807, four years previous. After wintering at Salish House until 1812, he then crossed the Rockies for the last time and travelled to Montreal where he would officially retire from surveying. Retiring with a generous pension worth £100 or £7,200 today, plus a full share of company profits for three years, he had plenty of money. At this point, Thompson began to work on creating his great map, which would be a summary of his lifetime of exploring the continent. It covered Lake Superior to the Pacific, and the map would prove so accurate, it was still being used by the Canadian government over 100 years later. In 1815, the family moved to Williamstown, Upper Canada, and lived on a farm he purchased from the Reverend John Bethune. A few years later, he was employed to survey the new border at the Lake of the Woods, that had been established after the War of 1812. Over the next five years, he conducted surveys along the St. Lawrence River towards Sault Ste. Marie, and through these years, his responsibilities increased to the point where he was managing field operations of the survey crews. His skill won over the scientific observers and political appointees on both sides of the border. After completing an atlas that showed the region from Hudson Bay to the Pacific Ocean, Thompson would return to his life as a landowner, and he even served as the Justice of the Peace beginning in 1820. Sadly, most of his money would be lost in 1825 when the Northwest Company agent, Milgivray's Thane and Company, went bankrupt. Most of his remaining wealth was invested in land, and he was mostly unsuccessful in making money off the land he owned. To find income elsewhere, he would invest in Potash Production Company and two general stores, and both of these failed. By 1831, his capital resources were mostly gone, and in 1833 he was so deep in debt that he had to assign the lands he still owned to his creditors to avoid bankruptcy. For three years, he found work carrying out the hydrographic surveys for canal projects for the British North American Land Company, and in 1837, the government employed him in doing a survey of the waterways between Lake Huron and the Ottawa River. By this point, he was in his late 60s, doing the work he had done as a young man. Over the next eight years, work opportunities would become less and less, and he was relegated to doing street surveys in Montreal. He and his family also moved from their home in Williamstown to a rented house in Montreal, and they would be forced to move several times. Eventually, Thompson was forced to pawn his surveying tools and winter coat. To pay the rent, Thompson took whatever odd jobs he could find. He became desperate enough that in August of 1840, at the age of 70, he applied for a position to be a clerk with the Hudson's Bay Company. At the same time, he was unable to find a publisher for his maps. But the British government did buy a map of the Northwest from 1843 for £150, or 
15,000 pounds today. The map would be published without mentioning Thompson's name on it. One of the final jobs for Thompson was surveying the vast estate of fellow explorer Sir Alexander Mackenzie. In his last years, he lived with his daughter and son-in-law, working on his journals consisting of 77 field books in the hope that they would be published. His good eye began to fail and by 1851 he was completely blind and his manuscript was unfinished. On February 10, 1857, he died in poverty and obscurity. Charlotte, his lifelong companion, died three months later. During his life, he mapped 3.9 million square kilometers, one-fifth of the continent, and Sir Alexander Mackenzie would state that Thompson could do more in ten months than he thought possible in two years. Thankfully, his name was not lost to history, and for that we owe J.B. Tyrrell a debt of gratitude. In the 1890s, Tyrrell found the notes of Thompson, and in 1916 they were published as David Thompson's narrative. New editions of his notes will be published in 1926, 1971, and 2015. It was also Tyrrell that ensured Thompson's unmarked grave at Mount Royal Cemetery was given a tombstone, and in 1926 he was named a National Historic Person. Historic plaques honour Thompson in several places in Alberta and British Columbia, and at Lac La Biche a statue exists to honour when he landed there on October 4, 1798. Other statues and monuments honour him in North Dakota, Montana and British Columbia. In 1957, Thompson was honoured with a postage stamp and the David Thompson Highway was named for him, as is a high school in Leslieville, Alberta, and two secondary schools in Vancouver and Invermere. In 1958, Charles Sandell, the great-grandson of Thompson, opened the David Thompson Stampede in Rocky Mountain House, where his great-grandparents had wintered 160 years previous. In 2007, a commemorative plaque was placed on the wall of the Grey Coat Hospital to honour the time that Thompson attended there. Parks Canada also announced that its new research vessel would be called the RV David Thompson. Today, Thompson is considered to be the greatest land geographer that the world has ever produced. The indigenous who respected him and whom he respected would call him the man who looked at stars. I will end this episode with a quote from the Hudson Bay Road. The world can never be allowed to forget the discoverer of the sources of the Columbia, the first white man who ever voyaged on the upper reaches and the main upper tributaries of the mighty river, the pathfinder of more than one way across the continent of the divide from Saskatchewan to Columbian waters, the greatest geographer of his day in British America, and the maker of what was then by far its greatest map. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at David Thompson. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website. We will find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurie-Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, 
and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Canadian Encyclopedia, David Thompson Country, Wikipedia, Biography, Canadian Museum of History, British Columbia from Earliest Times to the Present, Fort Vermilion before Alberta, The Hudson Bay Road, Days Before Yesterday, and The Conquest of the Great Northwest. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.